Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. From Hollywood, California, the horror capital of the world, the Boulay Brothers, Creatures of the Night. Welcome back, everyone, to another horrifying episode of the Boulay Brothers, Creatures of the Night. So we're going to start this episode off with some exciting news. This is only for listeners of the show, so you're not going to see an article about it online before you hear about it here first. So we are working on a big surprise for fans of the Boulay Brothers, Dragula, that's going to be ready just in time for Halloween this year. Uh, Obviously, we can't go into any details about it, but what we can tell you is that it is Boulay Brothers, Dragula content. It will be televised. It's not season four, and we are incredibly excited about Ooh. it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, just on season four, we will also be opening up casting for season four in August. So if any of our listeners are planning on auditioning for the next season, it's a good time to start getting your materials together. Um, one thing I do want to say, uh, and maybe listeners can spread this to potential drag artists who plan on auditioning for the show, is please don't tag us personally or campaign <laughs> to be on the show by harassing us or messaging us over and over again like a million times because i can tell you for sure that doing that decreases your chances greatly <laughs> yes that's very true uh just a little side note on that i'll say um if you want to be on the show and you're like i know how i'll get on the show I'll become best friends with all the people that were on the show and all the people that work on the show. I, honestly, that is a good way 
of not ever getting cast on the show is to do something like that because we don't want people to know that you're going to be on the show. So, you know, just my advice to you is if you want to be on the Belay Brothers Dragula, just make an incredible audition tape and be good at your art and you'll be fine. Absolutely. And if you listen to the last episode of the podcast, you had personal advice from all three previous winners. And I think the thing that all of them uh, repeated was be yourself. Don't try to put on airs. Don't try to be something that you're not. Uh, We can see right through it and just be yourself and give us the best of what you can create. And that way we will have an amazing cast and an amazing season. Yeah. So we gave you some exciting news. Again, we can't go too into it, but we wanted to give you a little bit because I know a lot of people are asking on social media uh, about season four and if there's more content coming. And the answer is yes, it is. We're going to put that aside now. We're going to start off this episode a little differently. Normally, we do our listener questions at the end of the episode. But since uh, the last episode, we didn't answer any because we interviewed all of our super monsters. We're going to start off this episode answering your listener questions. So why don't we get right into it? Okay, so question number one is, do either of you have much interest in the medium of comics or particular cartoonists? And do you have any creators that you enjoy? So I will say we are huge comic book fans, especially me. I went to college for comic books, actually, to write and illustrate comics. And yeah, and I kind of I think we're both obsessed with the aesthetic of comic book art. You can see that in our drag, the simple forms. And I'm really into Jack Kirby illustrations. I think I draw from inspiration from his art in our drag. You know, I like that really square jaw and like big uh, powerful looking women, uh, like the new gods or big Barda, that kind of vibe. And, you know, a lot of people always try to paint to look softer there and I paint to look harder there. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. And obviously we have Phil Jimenez on the show. Uh, Steve Orlando is another comic book writer that we love and work with. And my personal favorite though, I would say is John Strander, who was the writer of the Suicide Squad back in the day. Which you turned me on to because I missed it back when that comic was actually coming out and I ended up reading it years later. And, uh, you know, it's so good and I love the characters and Amanda Waller and just the kind of rogue gallery of bad guys and then going to Apocalypse and Granny Goodness and like all that stuff is amazing. Um, yeah, needless to say, I'm also a comic book fan. Um, and I kind of go as far as like the arts, the artists that I like, um, I think Jim Lee is kind of classic. I associate him with like a classic era in the visuals of comics and someone who might be a little bit more uh, offbeat um, would be Frank Quietly. I think when his artwork came out like back um, when I was reading like the authority, the textural detail, just just seeing it uh, was just something that I had like never really seen before. I hadn't seen that style expressed Probably one of my favorite arcs would be from the new X-Men back when Grant Morrison was writing it and Frank Quietly was illustrating it. This is like back in the early 2000s. Um, it was just really different kind of storytelling, great characters, really memorable and like reimagining of some characters that um, we'd seen before just in, in new and interesting ways. Uh, for me, I'm kind of attracted to like the quirky titles, surprise, um, like the Secret Six and the Inhumans. I haven't read comics in years, so I'm a little, I think a little out of the loop. All right. So why don't we move on to the next question? Uh, says, I was wondering what you both think about having fan pages for you or your show. I've always wondered if celebrities find it weird or sweet, etc. What do you think about that? I kind of find it weird and sweet, frankly. Uh, I think it's sweet because devotion is sweet. And you can see how our personal drag or the things that we create, like the show, really inspire other people or speak to them. And and I also think it's weird because it didn't happen much sooner than it did. I I thought it happened a long time ago, (laughs) frankly. 
Yeah, I, I, you know, it, it's grown. The fan pages of us on the show over the years, and uh, I think it's flattering. You know, that someone is. I mean, sometimes it's a little scary when it's like the entire thing is dedicated to you, and there's lots of content on there, and they um, like to take pictures of you <laughs> and zoom up on them really close. Don't like that. <laughs> Don't know what that is about. But other than that, I love fan pages. <laughs> Let me ask you this uh, about your tattoos. Do you consider your tattoos some kind of body modification because they're not subtle? <laughs> well, thank you for letting me know that they're not subtle. I do not consider them some sort of, quote, body modification because I think it's just a made-up term. I mean, if people want to consider tattoos or piercings or whatever that that's fine it, it's not that to me um so no for me i think uh, well first of all forget subtlety like that's boring who cares i plan on getting a lot more tattoos um and i see them as kind of totems and and armor uh, they remind me of principles that i follow in my life and they offer protection uh, against the world that's actually how i look at my tattoos so very good next question is what is y'all's favorite thing <laughs> about each other and what is one thing that annoys you the most God, just one uh-huh. <laughs> i'm gonna say my favorite thing about drac is that she's the most fun i mean we have so much fun creating together we have more fun destroying together i look at you as like my partner in crime and kind of everything that we do together is just made better and more fun because you're there with me that's the truth well thank you now what do you hate about me you are way overly opinionated, and I don't know if people out there have ever spent a lot of time around hypercritical people, but it is exhausting. Lord, help me through this pandemic. Um, speaking of, my opinion is that that answer was dumb, so let's scratch it from the record. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is my favorite? I think the thing that is my favorite uh, I don't know if I favor. Favorite's so weird. Something that I enjoy about you, but that also can be annoying is you tend to philosophize everything. So it's like you can take a simple fact and sort of, uh, you know, flounce it and turn it into something complicated and kind of beautiful. But then sometimes that can be annoying, too. So, well, you're you're, you're learning, young Padawan. <laughs> Next question. Do you regret sending someone or not sending someone home on Dragula? And if you don't mind, explain who and why. You know, I don't think I look back on any of those decisions in that way. It's sort of in the moment, it happens for a reason, and you move on. That's how I think of it. I actually think that that's a really sound way to move forward. Um, but if I had to say anything, my heart sank when we said goodbye to Abora on the second season of the show. Um, she's just such like a beautiful nightmare. It, it hurt me a little bit to see someone like so brilliantly toxic bite the dust like right before the finale i was just intrigued to see what she would have brought to the final floor show and her looks because i, I i'm kind of a fan of her chaotic style so i think it would have been something uh, unique what does drac mean when she said i kind of think of brothers in a queer sense of the word oh yeah i said that on the podcast so what i mean when i say that is that you know i think of brothers in a old school gay kind of way for a lot of uh, queer people their friends and their chosen family can be closer to them than their real blood relatives so that's what i'm referring to uh, old school kind of like friends and lovers that you hang out with not in a blood related way i also subscribe to that train of thought and i uh and i agree i use the word um in the same way 
Um, the next question is Swan right-handed and Drac left-handed? Drac, they're catching on. Yes, we are kind of mirrors <laughs> in many ways. And I am right-handed and Drac is actually left-handed. Oh, on that note, another physical question I see. I'm trying to settle a debate with my brother. What is the height difference between you two without heels? I don't know how, what, how it's, many actually. I think it's like four or five inches, it, but that's not really yeah. what's important. What's important is this person needs to write in and tell us who won their brother or them, because that's what really matters. It's like who wins in the day. Yeah, I'm curious too. Mm-hmm. Well, sometimes, you know, used to we would wear gigantic heels because part of our whole drag is to really disguise who we are and become otherworldly. So we would wear gigantic heels in the beginning and people thought we were mega tall for the longest time. And then sometimes uh, we'll even do something where I will wear or shorter heels and Swan will wear taller ones so we kind of balance out a little bit so it's always a little different yeah. uh, depending on the look too because the shoes are kind of important what was your favorite floor show challenge of Dragula okay in third place was the Wickedest Witch the very first challenge that we had on season one of Dragula in second place I think would be the sci-fi challenge because I'm a sci-fi kind of girl but with sci-fi comes fantasy and probably number one would be my Dungeons and Drag Queens because I, I wow I, it okay. was so fun you know I'm a fantasy freak I love the idea of like melding a fantasy uh, race with a class and then having to perform and act and all of that like I really love that challenge I really like the gothic wedding challenge from season two uh, that was a personal favorite and in the opposite direction I love the post-apocalypse episodes, I really like that Mad Max style as well. So I'd say those maybe are my two favorite. I don't know. Cabin in the Woods was good too. <laughs> exactly. So. There's too many good ones. That's <laughs> I know. I love is. them all. They're so genius at creating those challenges. You can't really choose which one we like the best. Well, I mean, we pick the challenges based off of things we like. <laughs> so I'll, I'll, honestly, all of them we like. But let's go on to the final question. Uh, I view alt-drag as art and self-expression that brings me such absolute joy and also makes me feel empowered as a woman. I've been wondering if this could be seen as offensive or wrong somehow since i myself am not queer just a fellow weirdo i would like to say to you of course there's nothing offensive about it if especially with you know drag so many cis men dress up as women how could you possibly tell a woman that they can't do drag it seems absurd to me darling i absolutely am not here to split hairs with allies if she wants to do drag and she's a self-proclaimed weird woman doing drag i'm completely here for it and no offense taken yeah and it's all people's personal opinion my personal opinion is i think um that you should do everything over the top, like huge and crazy and extreme. Uh, that That's just my opinion, my advice, but, uh, you know, take it for what it's worth. All right. I think we got to most of your questions. Thank you all for writing in. We really have a fun time um, answering those, but we have a lot to get to this episode. So let's bring in our co-host and producer of the Boulet Brothers Dragula, Ian DeVogler. Hey, ladies. Hello, Ian. How are you? Fabulous. Thank you for asking. How are you guys? We're doing well. What's uh, what's the latest in the world of horror and drag this episode? Well, first up, I have something for you from the worlds of science and real-life terror from the deep. So two brand new underwater monsters have recently been discovered. There is the giant Indonesian sea cockroach and my personal new aesthetic, the ultra-black Pacific black dragon. <laughs> Where do you find this shit and what are these things? <laughs> I just have like a personal list of, you know, anytime they find weird new shit, I just, oh, I'll talk on the podcast. Anyway, so the giant sea cockroaches were found off the coast of Indonesia and they measure on average one to two feet long. Uh, uh. They, 
They have 14 legs, they feed on the carcasses of dead sea animals, and they generally make me never want to go into the ocean again. I think I've seen one of those in Palm Springs before, to be honest with you. Oh, definitely. (laughs) What do they call it? There's one, I think they have a special name for them. Oh, I'm spacing it now, like those uh, palmetto, they like flying cockroaches, yeah. Yeah, you got attacked by one. (laughs) I did. That's another story, but like, God, if someone wanted to ask... That's your challenge. Write in the next viewer question. Swan needs to tell about the Palmetto (laughs) attack in Palm Springs because it happened and it is truly scary. Oh, that's definitely going to be my listener question. Uh, and maybe a little less terrifying and a little more fabulous, uh, the Pacific Black Dragon is actually a deep-sea eel-like fish that is so darkly pigmented that their skin cells absorb 99% of all incoming light. Uh, when researchers shine lights on them to photograph them, the fish essentially vanished into the darkness. They have fangs, they're just horrifying looking, and they've been related to this color called Vanta Black, which is so dark that it just absorbs all natural light. And they just found them? Yes. Hmm. What's the things about? Are they carnivores or? Yeah, they have fangs, and I think generally they are carnivores, but mostly it's just an aesthetic thing. Uh, You know, they're auditioning for season four, so (laughs) perfect. (laughs) I've read something about like a fabric that they're trying to develop, and I think it has a similar name, the Vanna Black, where you know it's so absorbent in the way that it reacts to light that it's like blacker than black. And of course, like the goth jokes, you know, in food and like poured out from there. But it's intriguing that there's an animal that kind of displays that same coloration. No, totally. I mean, when things like that come up, I'm like, I don't understand this. I'm just going to laugh and pretend like I understand how this sort of science works. But Vanta Blackfish, (laughs) let's go. Cute. Interesting. What else? (laughs) So up next, I have a few updates from the worlds of global film and television. Uh, This is a little bit of a weird one, but hear me out. Uh, The WWE has paid tribute to Ari Aster's Midsommar with the advertising for their new event, WWE Horror Show Extreme Rules. Uh, The poster for the event features pro wrestler Sasha Banks as the quote-unquote July Queen, uh, complete with a flower crown in the same style as the original Midsommar poster. Uh, The event is going to feature wrestling matches with horror themes, and I think it's kind of fabulous since pro wrestling is basically already high-intensity drag with a horror twist. It sounds like the Blair Brothers Dragula. Oh, hello. (laughs) You know, the old Glow show, I feel like, was like season two of Dracula. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Even a little of season one, like, let's not forget. Like yeah. Ursula and Frankie and Zochi and Melissa B. Ferris, like wrestling in the mud. Mm-hmm. Oh, it is always my litter, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think this is great, although I'm super pissed that they didn't ask us to host it. But uh, totally. I mean, maybe for the next one. You know, there's an interesting correlation between wrestling fans and Dragula fans, and I see it online all the time. It's so crazy. They'll tag us and like different and I don't know shit about wrestling today, but you know, they'll tag us and all these wrestlers and it's just weird that there's a crossover there. Okay, I've never really thought of that before or us in that light, but can't you picture us as like these kind of mysterious managers who enter the squared <gasps> circle with sure. our next like killer machine? That's yeah, a, and yeah, I, like I hi, Israel, we throw them in there and like mind control them to attack everyone. It'd be great. Totally. totally. And we can poison someone on the side. You know, they always did like oh, weird shit like that. God, like way back in the day, like Mr. Fuji with his like, God, the salt ceremony and he like blind people. <laughs> oh, my oh my God. God. Yeah. No, I live for that shit. <laughs> I don't know anything about Mr. Fuji or the salt ceremony, but y'all can just leave me in the locker room. I'll be totally fine. Oh my God. I I was a little kid. I was like, yes, blind her, poison her. (laughs) 
<laughs> Why am I not shocked at all? And now look at you today. I know. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, ooh, anyway. So another uh, interesting tidbit about the world. So Train to Busan Peninsula uh, just debuted. It pulled in $21 million at the box office from overseas markets with $750,000 coming from IMAX theaters, making this the biggest weekend for IMAX theaters since the pandemic started. Uh, Train to Busan Peninsula is the sequel to Train to Busan, an incredible zombie film that I know all three of us enjoy, and it's coming to the U.S. on August 7th via online distribution. Uh, it was so wondering. exciting. Yeah, I saw that yeah. online, uh, how successful it's been in without theaters being open either. Totally. Um, I'm super excited. Have, I don't know if you guys have seen the trailer, but it's looking like it's taking more of kind of an action zombie twist. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure it's going to be amazing. I kind of stopped watching trailers in the last year because they're so long now. They basically tell you the entire movie before you even <laughs> sit down to watch it. And it just ruined us. And I'm like, I don't know. There's a granny in this movie. I'm going to watch it. Like, speaking of our movie, this, <laughs> yeah. our movie review this episode. But totally. yeah, I don't like, I'm not into the trailers. I'm going to avoid it, but I'll definitely watch it when it comes out. Definitely. Oh my God. Trandy Busan was such a pleasant surprise for us because we went on this yeah. kick of, of watching tons of like foreign horror. And that was actually the week that I, I, I had that night scare where came into the room and bumped the bed accidentally and I like woke up in an absolute terror like screaming bloody murder and Train to Busan was part of that like psychological breakdown for me you're welcome and I can't wait for the sequel (laughs) <laughs> wow i truly can't wait for the sequel and i hope that i don't have any uh i don't know night terrors that involve you guys i mean any more than i already do right <laughs> um so the last thing i have for you guys um the terror vault in san francisco is undergoing some changes to their theme this year to fit within the global pandemic uh the details are still under wraps but according to the producer of the terror vault and friend of the show peaches christ uh the narrative of the haunt will have masked guests totally isolated from their groups with scare actors appearing behind protective barriers it makes me wonder what kind of haunts and i guess narratives we'll hopefully see this season if we're able to go but i thought this was an interesting update from the worlds of horror and drag well i hope it works yeah peach is as you said is a a friend of ours and the show and i i don't know i'm kind of i'm not sure if i believe haunts are going to open this year what do you guys think well, if someone can figure it out, I'm going to leave it to Peaches, and I'd be excited to see what kind of incarnation the Terror Vault takes this year, if any. But if not, we could always go back to that idea, what was it, Japan, where they were doing like those mm-hmm. drive-in things like <laughs> in your car and being scared. But remember, Jack, we can't let people actually be moving the car because that's definitely a <laughs> recipe for disaster that's where i'm leaning i feel like the the in the car one is definitely good i saw i didn't include this in the list because i thought it was stupid but there's all of these like virtual escape rooms and i'm like this is just a horror video game sis this yeah. has been around for a long ass time right yeah totally. i mean i guess the only difference being is that you could have the actors react differently or do different things for each one but i mean it's really just Go on your PlayStation 4. (laughs) (laughs) Truly. And that's all the uh, updates I have for you guys this week. Well, Ian, darling, thank you for bringing us those updates from the worlds of both horror and drag. Right now, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll be joined by our special guest and star of The Craft, the one and only Rachel True. Arda Wiggs has been serving looks in the drag and costume community since 2009. Their reputation in the wig world is well known for providing luscious, thick, snatchingly good styles that turn heads and ensure you are serving the most devilish of looks. 
With over 100 colors and 80 styles to choose from, they're sure to have something to make you scream. Use the code ARDABOULE10 for 10% off at arda-wigs.com and treat yourself to something truly hair-raising. Welcome back, Uglies. And our next guest is American film and TV actress and star from The Craft, a movie that has inspired us all. She's been a judge on the Boulay Brothers' Dragula and also has a new book out. Please welcome Rachel True. Hi, everyone. (laughs) Hello. How are you, Rachel? I'm awesome. I mean, you know, given the confines of our weird, weird, weird country... Uh, right now, but I'm good. Um, and I want to thank you guys so much for having me on because I had a blast doing your show. I really did being a judge. I had so much fun. We are super delighted to have you. Uh, yeah, and last we saw you, we were all having fun on the set of the Blade Brothers Dragula judging monsters. That's um, right. <laughs> How did your fans respond to you being on the show? You know what? I got so much love, which I'm sure you guys know. It's a wildly popular show. But I got tons of love for that appearance. And I wanted to be a permanent guest, you guys. <laughs> well, I think you're great. We definitely want to have you back. And I, we don't say that to anyone because, you know, you never know what's going to happen. But I, in your case, I know for sure we're like, oh, my God, Rachel is so much fun. So we definitely intend on having you back for sure. I mean, I think it helps that I am from, familiar with the genre of drag, you know, mm-hmm. like as a kid growing up in New York City um, and my stepmom was an actress like uh, we I, we knew drag queens I guess and then as I've gotten older I just have a lot of friends so when I when I saw the artistry that was up there and it actually seemed like those guys people were working even harder uh, than I've seen on other shows let's say yeah, you know truly. stakes are really high for them this is their ticket yeah yeah, and also it's like, you know, for a lot of them, they don't get the opportunity to showcase their artistry. So they really, you know, so many of our competitors are so talented and they don't get the opportunity to, to show their crafting skills or this or that. And so they really go, this is their chance to go all in and show everything. So I think they're just excited to do it. That's what I meant by the stakes are high for the people yeah. that are on there. And you can tell um, I was a fan of everyone that I saw on that stage. And I don't know how you guys go about, you know, cutting people out. It's so painful. That part hurts so much. It sucks. It really does. And sometimes it's a little bit more painful for them, if you know what I mean. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was actually really stoked to be a judge because I thought about all the times I've auditioned for things. I have a lot of empathy for your performers because I've been them. Judge me, judge me, please judge me. It's not really a fun feeling. And yeah, as performers, we know if you can get through the nerves, whether it's drag, act, or whatever... If you can burst through those nerves and really show who you are, like some of your performers do, it's a beautiful energy. Thank you. Yeah, I think I think you're right. And it just uh, we try to encourage them too. we're like, remember, we're not judging your drag because dra- drag is an art form. We're sort of judging you on how can you use your drag to win these challenges. So I think it puts it in a little bit of a different space, maybe a little less disencouraging than uh, they're usually being judged, I think. 
Absolutely. And I was saying before, the Boulet brothers have a fabulous, um, is it Halloween gala? Like mm-hmm. a big ball. And they invited me and I didn't go because I'm an introverted extrovert. And I was like, oh my God, so many people. <sighs> and I wish I'd gone because I didn't know that was the last time we'd have invitations. Uh, <laughs> like, well, oh just for this year, one pause, we can skip a beat. We can all be, you know, we can have our little pleasure of Halloween, the Halloween season, the Halloween ball taken away from us so we can realize what an important place it plays in our life so that next year we can come <laughs> out and just raise hell but swan i'm a thousand percent with you with that attitude you know because yeah. in the end, when it comes to what's happening in, in america and the world and the pandemic you know uh it's it's the first time any of us are really dealing with this right so i believe in rolling with the punches and mostly because i'm a black person and i have to you know it's like <laughs> oh i'm up against this horrible wall you're telling me i can't get through hmm i've got to find a way around it and still have my sanity For sure. No, thank you for backing me up on that. But yes, I I think everyone is kind of being taught lessons that, you know, we're all um, kind of privileged and some of us to lesser degrees, but like to have the freedoms and the ways that we can celebrate and just our personal freedoms on a daily basis being questioned. It's like, holy shit, this is a time to look inward and assess and evaluate and, and put a value on things that we definitely take for granted. But this is, okay, you're just reminding me of why I enjoyed uh, doing your guys' show so much, is that I had never met, um, at, you know, the Boulay brothers, and, and they're in costume, and I don't know what's happening, and they're the nicest people in the world. <laughs> oh, you're ruining our reputation. <laughs> I, I mean, they're the most horrible, scary people in the world. Um, <laughs> no, they're uh, people. Underneath all the makeup and stuff, conscious, aware people, and that's the kind of vibe I dig. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Uh, It was fun meeting you on set, too, because, you know, and I think, too, the competitors later, they were like, oh, my God, because, you know, they know you from the craft and to them, like queer people growing up, like so many queer people related to the craft and all of you. And so they were intimidated you know what i mean so i i think they were just like not sure they were like nervous to interact with you guys well that's why i went over and introduced myself to everyone you know because i mm-hmm. thought oh my god i'm ju- i'm judging them which is sure. weird and i w- even the person who is released today from this has worked their butt off right yeah, and it doesn't absolutely. mean you're not an amazing fabulous performer just because you don't get to number one Uh, you know, winning the whole thing. I know this from being an actor. Actors talk about the great auditions they had that maybe they didn't get, but they knew their acting was pure that day and they were great. So you don't always get the thing, even if you did great, but it's about the performance and the energy you give. And so I just wanted to introduce myself and sort of give them a little of that pathos, you know? Yeah. Oh, for sure. Um, you know, you've had so many iconic contributions to the world of horror. I think maybe that's why some of the, the cast was a little intimidated, but also you know, you're a bonafide star that kind of seared your role as Rochelle in the craft into the minds of queer peoples, I think, all over the world. Um, but, you know, that's part of the reason why we loved having you on as a guest, but also because you represented the voice of women, particularly women of color in the horror space and in the film industry, which are so often voices like that can be sort of drowned out um, by the voices of men. Uh, can, can you speak a little bit about your experience, like working in the horror feel, film industry as a woman of color? Well, I think, you know, I've spoken about this before. I, there are times it was amazing and times it was super frustrating because I think that people forget, first of all, the 90s was a long time ago. And right before the 90s was the 80s where we had a lot of 
um, let's say just teen movies in general were very segregated. Even John Hughes, I think, in No Black People, maybe one Asian person who was the joke through the, throughout the whole movie, right? Sure. Horror movies were a little more diverse, uh, but usually the black biker got killed first, right? And now we move into the 90s, and The Craft was an all-white script, and uh, I really had to fight to get in and even get an audition for it. Um, but, and I've told this before, but this story is so true, about nine months before the craft script landed in my lap, my TV broke. And meanwhile, I didn't even have cable. I think I had like three channels. But I was like, okay, I'm not going to fix this TV. I'm not going to fix it. I'm going to uh, dive into my tarot studies. Um, I've been you know, doing tarot cards for a long time, but I was like, I'm just going to really... This is what actors do, by the way. Like, you have a slow pee, your TV breaks, first of all. But also, there were, I had had a busy period, and then all of a sudden, no auditions. And I went, I have to find something to do, or I'm going to go insane. Much like a pandemic, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> this sounds familiar. It does, because I had to busy myself. So I threw myself into my tarot studies, not knowing that all these years later, I'd end up writing a tarot book, right? But back to the broken TV when I'm studying my tarot, studying my tarot. Eventually, nine months later, someone comes over and, and um, they're like, oh, it's just this one wire. And they fix it that same week. And I was like, oh, great. My TV's back, huh? They fix it that same week the craft script shows up. And I read it and I'm like, if anyone's going to be a little brown witch in this town, it's me. <laughs> oh, I love it. It is me. <laughs> So, You're like, look, three of pentacles. I know what I'm talking about. Give me this role. Yeah, so long story. I won't bore you with all that because I did end up booking it after many, many, many hoops. But I would say it's interesting to me these days that one of my biggest uh, challenges is just being included in the conversation around that film. You know, they'll put up a, po a picture of the four witches, which I'm on the poster, and then they'll mention the other three actresses and leave me off. And I am fighting uh, for recognition on that. Parsh Listen, I'm not going to lie. Maybe partially it is. A little bit is ego. I, I worked. I did that. I want to be mentioned in it. But it's more so for future generations. When I was a child and I would see a movie and the person was just the black person and they didn't have a fucking name listed anywhere, you start to feel, I felt Less than as right. a child, I felt like, ah, oh, they must not be important then, and I must not be important then. Absolutely, of that. So it also is very important in terms of higher ability and pay scales in Hollywood. You know, um, so all of these are the reasons I am mouthing off constantly to this day on Twitter about if you're going to put up the poster of the four girls and, uh, you know, mention the three of them without me, I'm insulted. Now, I don't expect a reporter or a person writing the story to know my name. I do expect them to do their research because that is their job to sure. show who those four people are. So that's one thing with the movie. And then, you know, I was excluded from some conventions and that pissed me off too. <laughs> that's one of the things I want to talk to you about because on Twitter, I'm seeing this issue keep popping up of, I think it was Netflix and Amazon Prime and they have three of the four stars of the show listed and not you. And I'm like, what? It's like shocking. Well, here's the deal. Quite a few of these are, are simply, they have overlooked me. That is true. Some of them, like I heard from back from Amazon Prime, two and a half days later, I might add, mm -hmm. instead of, I wish they just relayed this information to me three days ago when I first brought it up. They're, they're saying we only have room for three names. So, okay, fine. 
I wish they'd said that three days ago. It's weird. It took them three days to tell me that, but that's fine. And I said, okay, thank you for that information. Now, the other companies, they had room for four names and they updated my name. I think Mm -hmm. it is odd that I am continually left out of the conversation on the movie, but I begin to understand why when, if you pull up the movie, you only see their three names listed. So then why would you include me in the conversation about the movie? She's not important. She's listed as supporting maybe. So that, that it always seems to be the minority character. Like let's, let's be real. This all happened to Ernie Hudson on a much bigger movie, Ghostbusters, where he was not included in a lot of the publicity. Now that was in the eighties. Times were different and you know, well, same kind of racism, but, um, So I feel like it's important for me to keep fighting for this. Uh, As I've said to young girls, like when you look through your textbook in school and there's a statue and it is called Dancing Woman, that woman had a name at a certain point. She had a name, but it was lost and it was forgotten through history. So we've done this to women and we do it to minority people, especially. And I am a a half black Jew, I feel like. And I'm a woman. Load on the oppression. Sure. Yeah, well, I'll remind uh, listeners out there too. If you see Rachel tweeting about this, give it a retweet and help spread the word because it is ridiculous. And I, I've seen some of it online myself, and I'm like, what is happening? Backing up to something you mentioned about, like, I think you are being gracious. Like, you know, part of it may be ego, but I say absolutely not. Like, scream this from the rooftop and the rafters. I think when anyone thinks about the movie, the craft, there aren't three girls. There are four girls. There are four witches. It's the north, south, east, west. We're calling the corners. I mean, it goes with the show. And to, to not include you or to have your name omitted for some reason or another, it's just unacceptable. And I think our listeners need to understand the reality of your experience because I think for many of them, it would be shocking and it shouldn't be because this stuff has been going on for I mean since cinema since the the inception of the country that this type of racism and exclusive behavior not only because you're a person of color but also you're a woman like you said stack on the uh you know the minority oppression and when we're talking about women in color women of color like I think I whinged on when I was excluded from a convention that had invited the other three actresses but not me and I'd been contacting this convention for months saying, I'd like to go too. you have Nevin Feruza. What about me? You know? And they were like, uh, no answer or we'll let you know. And then they announced Robin and still not me. And I said, Hey, you've got three out of the four now. Would you add me? And they didn't. And uh, that's when I went on my Twitter thing because I can round this back to when I was coming up in the nineties, there weren't any, there were very few black celebrities. And I began to understand why when I was excluded from the MTV movie awards, because all of a sudden I wasn't up there on stage with my cast, which meant all the producers and all the people in the audience did not see me on Mm -hmm. and as a peer to those girls. I was never here to them, even though I was in the same movie, which meant when I went and auditioned for the next movie that I booked, I didn't get paid as much money. You know, and I already got paid a third of what these girls less, you know, that what they got paid for the movie, which whatever, but the pay scales of black actors is notoriously shit. Yeah. So what was going on in your head at that moment when you were at the MTV movie awards and you're in the audience, are you like, what the fuck? Like, what, well, what were you thinking? Here's the thing about, I think, being human and, like, ultimately why I wrote the tarot book, because a lot of the times that energy can get shifted to a few things, right? It could be, I'm jealous of them. It wasn't that. My my pain tends to, tended, especially when I was younger, to take the form of shame. 
Mm. Right. So I'm sitting in the audience. I'm feeling ashamed. There must be something mm. wrong with me. Wow, I wasn't okay. invited up there. And this is very common in black people in our psychology, I think, because there's a cognitive dissonance to if I'm, why aren't I included? I'm part of this group. I'm excluded. Huh? What are the reasons I could be excluded? It, it can't be the most obvious, which is like the black person just wasn't that important. Like I wasn't included in a lot of the publicity for the movie, the craft, because they knew a lot of black people weren't going to go see it. So they mm-hmm. thought we don't necessarily need her. In fact, for the one publicity trip that I ended up going on, Nev Campbell had to ask the producers to include me. Wow. That was really nice of her way back in the day. I don't think she understood, though. She thought it was like, well, you're just not as famous as me, which was true, but also it was racism, too. And that right. is probably one of my issues with my white peers. I think they don't understand that. Their actors were all in our ego, and you know, they're like, well, I've done more than you. They don't understand that black people have not had the same opportunities, the same pay scale, the same visibility. So the chances of me doing the same are exponentially less. And to round it back to the convention, that was all very frustrating for me uh, because I feel like this is really unfair. That's how I felt. Uh, I don't feel shame so much as an adult now. I know it's not because I'm not worth it, like uh, how I felt when I was younger. I thought it must be because I'm not as you know great as they are. Now I think this is racism, pure and simple, so I will call it out. <laughs> and, you know, ultimately, I brought that convention, so I got it eventually included, but I brought them so much more money. Everybody did maybe quadruple, triple what they normally do in our little groups. So I would think my cast would be thanking me, frankly. Yeah, you yeah. Know? with the whole cast there, it's certainly more powerful. Absolutely. Much more gravity. It was the first time we were all together since 1996. And the interesting thing is when they can, I said, it'll be the first time we're together since 1996. You don't want me there. And they were like, no. Oh my God. They literally were like, no, we don't need you. And that incensed me. And that is probably when I went on my, my Twitter rant. And Frank, you know, as far as the way it shakes down, I haven't really talked about this too much, but you know, I've got memoir essays in my book. So Mm -hmm. I've had to think about my life and Ultimately, I do, like, here's the thing. Fruza Ball called me up and was like, what's going on? And I was like, oh, girl, I'm so sorry that you got you. She's like, I don't care. I don't care what's happening. And mm. I explained to her, and she said, yeah, they're gaslighting you. Do whatever you need to do. <laughs> mm, so I really appreciate you. her allyship <clears throat> in terms of that. She has comes from a different background herself, so I think she understands being different. But I don't know. The other two girls, they, I don't think they understood, to be totally honest. Like, one of yeah. them said to me, oh, no, uh, it's not a craft reunion. I'm here for this, and, and she's here for that, and she's here because she was supposed to be here last year, but she wasn't. But it's not a craft reunion, Rachel. And I was... <laughs> Uh, and then they were like, but do you want me to ask if you can come? And I said, no, thank you. I will do this myself. It's not 1996. Right. And the other one, I didn't hear from the other one, but a rep, her convention rep, sent a statement and said, that so-and-so would feel comfortable if you said this statement. And I said, I'm a goddamn grown black lady. I would feel comfortable if so-and-so said this themselves. Right. <laughs> so it was all just really frustrating to be totally honest. Of course. I mean you have to you have to exhibit so much patience to just deal with these 
glaring inequalities and, and it's ridiculous because some people just aren't aware of things unless they're living through it I, and i'm not going to say i understand I, I don't understand it fully but i what i where i do understand it from is is also being like a queer person because there are a lot of things that get repeated even through like subtext in films and stuff and, and we'll go to horror noir because that was like an, an important part of talking to you too that we wanted to touch on um, but you know, the queer subtext in horror through the ages, I mean, especially through like the, the magical 80s when every minority was just shredded. Um, if you're not one of those minorities, it can just go right over your head. That's yeah. true. Right if, you were, if you were not gay, you don't notice that the gay character dies quickly or, or the lesbian lovers, one will always die tragically. <laughs> Or the black, or how many times they say the word faggot in the eighties as like just rip you down derogatory thing. So in your young psyche, you're like, oh, I'm that. Like that's a bad thing. I'm bad, you know. And, and that just that's just what happens. That's what I'm saying about internalizing the shame, you know. Yeah. And that is what I think a lot of young people do. And so again, that's sort of why I'm being vocal now because it sort of hit me. I was like, wait. I'm an adult now. I may not act like one or feel like one, but I'm a grown-up, and uh, nobody can tell me to shut up now because I'm a grown-up. You know, it's interesting, too, and I say this about... Because horror conventions, some of them are, are fantastic. Some of them you can get the sense that... There is an old school white male presence there that isn't necessarily comfortable with us as drag queens or people of color or anyone uh, of a diverse nature. And it makes me, even though it's a little uncomfortable, it makes me want to go there more for the representation (laughs) aspect. You know, I'm like, I'm going to come there and step onto that convention floor and you're going to look at me and I don't care if you're comfortable with me because I'm not comfortable with you. You know, one thing I've begun to appreciate about conventions, because honestly, the first one I ever did, I was like, holy fuck, everybody. Everybody's touching me. That was, <laughs> I really, it was very challenging for me, the first one I ever did. Every picture I look like, oh, what's happening? And then I realized, no, 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 wait. This is where the weirdos get to come and be themselves and not be judged, you know? Yeah. So on that level, I appreciate it. Now, I don't, I don't think people who run, I'm not here to say the person who ran their convention was racist. I don't think that at all. I don't. What I think though is it's dollars and cents, just like everything is always dollars and cents. And I think Mm. the old paradigm is that's not going to make us money. Uh, We don't have any black people who come through here. We don't need that person. It's not going to make us any money. You know, and that is a paradigm that I'm trying to break through. And I was so pleased with the amount of bearded white guys who came through my line at that particular convention and said, I'm here. No, literally, they were like, first of all, I, I listen to your Instagram as the Hair Dries Theater series. I love it. And I'm here to support you, Rachel. And I was like, thank you. Like, it meant a lot because I think it also showed the convention people. See all the white people in our line? Yeah, yeah, and, absolutely, and the extra black people it brought in. So, uh, it's a money's. It's always about money. We've said this many times too. Like, uh, you know, people ask us about the success of the show or the passion that we put into our projects, and the answer kind of touches on what you're saying. It's not always about being rich. It's about kind of being right. And for us, it's about being inspired and 
representing the actual culture and, and, you know, some of the decisions that we make might not be the most palatable. It might make it more difficult for us to land on proper networks or deal with certain executives, but we want to represent it the right way. And it's not just about getting to the riches. And I think if more people did that, there's another way you can be rewarded. And it isn't just money. There, it's about like love and it's kind of like changing the energy of an experience and including people. And that's like what we shoot for. Absolutely. And it shows, you know, I actually love that you had the female drag uh, that I hadn't actually seen that in person. You know what I mean? I'd seen it on TV maybe, but not in person. And the performer, I'm spacing her name, uh, you know, um, really interesting to see the cross section of people you'd created. And back to the conventions, that's what's interesting about them, the cross section of Americans who were there, like they live for movies. They live for your drag show. They are the fans who appreciate the art you were putting out. Mm-hmm. So after my first convention, now my pictures are super, we're super happy looking <laughs> because <laughs> I understood. I got it. You know, I just didn't grow up in a household where we hugged. So I was like, Oh God, the hugs, but you know, it's good for me. <laughs> it's good for me. I don't like it either. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm like, don't touch the hair. Sorry. <laughs> I hope we do a convention together too, because I think we'd have a lot of fun. So oh, yeah. hopefully, let's put that out in the universe. Oh yeah. yeah, no, I would love to. If there's ever conventions again, who knows? <laughs> um, I do know I'm doing a Funko Pop, a virtual like Funko Pop signing, which I was really. I just want to give a shout out to Funko Pop for including me. They did, uh, you know, pops of the craft. And by the way, I don't make any money off this, you know, but I think it's adorable that they didn't just leave Rochelle out, you know. Yeah. And I think it's adorable that they got her skin color and her hair and you know it's a great little cute little thing so i was pleased to be included in that i saw it on your social media your funko is adorable she is adorable she's holding <laughs> she's holding her little cross in her hand <laughs> <laughs> well listen let's talk about uh horror noir and for those listeners who have not seen it you need to watch it uh the film examines the relationship between african-american history and the evolution of the horror film genre and the roles that african-american people have played in the genre's development um how did it feel to see a documentary like this being made uh well first of all i was delighted to be a part of it it is a uh, horror noir is based on a book of the same name by the author robin means coleman she's a professor so what she did is uh, you know write the analogy as you said, between black lives and horror and how they parallel and how uh, uh, some of the oppression is played out within those monsters. Because when you think about it, uh, even Godzilla, right? That's a reaction to being bombed in Japan. Uh, Mm. Radioactive mutant, right? That's their reaction. So our American horror really does parallel stuff. And it starts, it opens with Birth of a Nation, (laughs) which is, you know, not a horror film, and yet it is a Mm. horror film Mm, uh, to many, many black people. So I, when I was asked to do it, and I'm going to tell this story only because, you know, you never know. And I just believe treat people the way you would like to be treated or the way way they would like to be treated, treat people well. But I was hit up years ago on Twitter by a girl who ran a blog, a horror blog, and she's a nice enough girl. And we, you know, went back and forth and she came to a convention. I met her there. And then a couple years later, she hit me up about the documentary. And all I know is she's got a little blog and I'm like, I don't know what it's going to be, but okay. You know, so I do it. 
And then I see it when I go to the premiere and I watch it, which was the first time I saw it. it it's great. It is fun. It is funny. It is educational. I was so delighted to be a part of it. And it came out of just the ethers, really. And they put together, uh, Xavier, who directed it, did a great job. Um, and they put together, I think, a really informative but fun piece. Wasn't there even extended uh, version that came out too with like more of the interviews and stuff like that? I yeah, believe, right? and for the audience who hasn't seen it yet, like one of the things I thought was really deep for me is they're talking about the film Blackula, which is you know a black exploitation ish version of Blackula done in the seventies. And I can't remember if it was the first one or the sequel, but Blackula turns his turns his friend into a vampire, and then his his friend is looking at himself in the mirror, mirror, and um, he, you know vampires have no reflection, and he says. Who is a, who, what is a man if he cannot see his own reflection? Now, mm. think about that in terms of black America in the 70s. We weren't in a, we, you know, we're, we, weren't, we weren't on TV like we are now. We were just right. starting to burst through in terms of entertainment, but not even like the 80s. Uh, so we could not see as black people our own reflection except as, you know, uh, servants or uh, dull-eyed zombies, et cetera, et cetera. So I, yeah. I think the dissertation in that documentary around this subject is quite deep. No, absolutely. And thank you for pointing that out because, I, th- I again, I think that's one of those things, unless you experience it, it could go over your head and we need to have conversations so that these things can be pointed out. And then it's like, oh, you know, the insight can come. And if you care to stop and you care about fellow man or, you know, another person's experience, like those things are meaningful. So thank you for sharing that. I just I wonder yeah, if people it, really can uh, experience it without feeling, without going through it themselves. Maybe everyone just needs to be reincarnated as something else to experience it. And I say this because when I went, I shot a movie in South Africa and 92% of the people on TV and in advertising are African, black Africans. So I got used to, I was there for two months and, you know, the Harley Davidson ads are black people on motorcycles and you never see that here. So when I got back to America, I was, I went through a bit of a culture shock and I went, Oh, I guess that is how white people here feel. They see themselves all the time. So you, you know you are important because you are sure. everywhere. Um, right. As I, I didn't feel super important in South Africa, but I just felt what it must be like, that comfort there is. It's, a, it's an unknown, unseen, unspoken comfort that is in seeing your identity everywhere. Well, I think too, like even the the movement that's happening now, it's kind of it forces you to re-examine because even if you're an ally or you feel like you're a very liberal person, I think you get comfortable too, you know. And then then things like you know what's happening right now happen in Black Lives Matter, and you have to you it's important you have to re-examine and be like, wait a minute, like it, it's so not there yet, you know what I've, I mean? Like it wakes everyone I've up. I've found a lot of my friends are comfortable, you know, buying a knitted pink pussy hat, but maybe not speaking up in a way I would, you know. I would want them to have allyship. Now, I don't expect everyone to be all over social media spotting their things. I know some people who are not on social media very often, but I've spoken to them, right? So I know where they're at. You know, it's also the idea of like, you want to speak out on social media. I think it's important. And we've said this before, like speak up and support, not step in front of the people you're trying to aid to. Because that's another thing is sometimes people get on social media and they're sort of like, more outraged than the outrage. You're like, wait a minute, this is about you. you know? <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, it's, it's, but it's such sticky wicket and it's tricky. And I write about this in my book that, um, you know, I grew up with my a white father, a white parent who I lived with from four on. And I was in foster care before that, but four on. And, um, 
you know, so I have an understanding, I think, of white people. And I lived in upstate New York, where it was all white in New York City before that, but upstate New York we moved to. So kind of have a different, I've lived among, I understand, and I also understand that when a white person's like, wait, I didn't do any of these things, why am I? But I've had to dig deeper to survive as a black person, so I do think it is time for, you know, my paler brothers and sisters to dig deeper as well now. Mm. Right. Agreed. Well, you have such an interesting background, too. Like, uh, you know, we're finding it out uh, being biracial. And then I think you mentioned somewhere where you're Jewish and you you spend time in various cities across the country. You went to Africa. Like, I think your perspective is pretty interesting. Um, But you've also come out with this book called The True Heart Intuitive Tarot Guidebook and Deck. Um, and this is kind of an interesting part of your history, too, because I read somewhere that you were reading tarot in like Echo Park uh, a couple of years ago. So can you tell us about your experience in tarot? Yeah, I'd always um, done tarot cards. I think I got my first deck maybe around eight, you know, and I was also always into um Carl Jung, oddly enough, like I know when I went to live with my dad as a kid and uh, we were taught to read pretty young at about four and a half, right? So it's not that I could read these books in their library. And by library, I mean bookcase that I would call the library. <laughs> sure. <laughs> library. <laughs> it's just a really tall bookcase. And I, the books I pulled down were um, Nietzsche's Beyond Good and Evil, probably because of the cover, right? And um yeah, uh, 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 Man and His Symbols, Carl Jung's book. And so I just love those books, right? And then picture-wise, I'm sure, and caught some words here and there. But then when I got a tarot deck, was given a tarot deck, I was like, oh, my God, these, are, these remind me of something. And then, and then I thought, this is a language. This, this is a language. It's trying to tell me something, and I can parse this. I can learn this language. So cut to I told you with the with the tarot cards before the craft and then yeah I um wanted to prove um that I could do like I've always read for myself and my friends and da 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 but I figured if I went like undercover (laughs) and just read cards you know like a person Mm -hmm. it would prove that I could do this do you know what I'm saying yeah, sure. You know what's annoying to me? It's like I saw an interview. Like, I'm going to say, like, people always ask, are you guys all close to the camera? I love Feruza. I don't know the other girls as well anymore. I used to hang out with them. I don't know them well. But, you know, Robin made a point of being like, Rachel's a tarot reader now. And it's like, no, Robin Tunney, I'm still an actress who has a mm-hmm. book who's also, a t- does many things, you know? So I did right. that just to prove to people for like less than a year to prove to people that I could do this. And I just didn't tell people who I was. Like people would come in and some people didn't know me at all. And some people did, you know, and I'd just be like, this is about you. Which it is. That's what a tarot reading is. It's about the other person. So then I decided, you know, this is great. I've learned a lot. And I didn't actually write in the book about that experience, reading for strangers, because I don't do that anymore, per se. I do do a Patreon workshop, though, where I do two streaming tarot workshops. I'm doing one later today, where I'm going to break down a spread for people. Um, but I don't do readings like that anymore. But writing the book was an amazing process. It's sort of, I've always known... I wanted to write a book. I have been an avid book reader as a child. I would read a book a day. School didn't believe me, and they tested me on my comprehension and had to give me all the gold stars. So being able to write a book is amazing to me. It took much longer than I thought. I was like, yeah, I'll have this book written in six months. Oh, my God, it took two years. Okay. <laughs> two years because you have to sa- – first of all, you have to satisfy – uh, there's so many schools of thought on tarot, right? And it's a 270, 80 page book, by the way, it's not just a little booklet. So 
I've designed a tarot uh, deck with an artist. I wish I'd had more control over the deck, to be 100% honest. But uh, it's mm-hmm. like working for a studio, you know, when you sell to a yeah. major publisher. So I, I think the deck came out really good. The book, I spent, again, two years writing 22 memoir essays to go along with the 22 major arcanas to kind of elaborate on them, as well as page-long definitions for each card. So it's not just you know, a line on a card, which I think is not enough. And I also have a philosophy with cards where I don't read reversals. I use my intuition, which everyone has, you know. Let me, let me ask you about that. Do, do you feel, do you use other tools of scrying? Like, do you ever, uh, are you interested in hand reading or palmistry or any other sort of you know divination method? Yes and no. I go in and out to be 100% honest. Um, I'm learning a little bit about astrology right now. I do find palm reading sort of interesting. Uh, but I, and I don't, I find scrying to be kind of cool too. I'm not married to any, any one of those. And I would say the reason I am so hooked in with tarot is like a lot of people I started because it's like, Ooh, I can tell the future. Right. But now, (laughs) but now what I understand is more of a Jungian approach to things, which is to say, as he said, the best way to predict the future is to determine how the present evolved from the past so Mm -hmm. for instance we all have friends and sometimes this is us ourselves who we we're something happens and we call and we dump all our shit on our friends right and i'm suggesting gently that people think of tarot as a shrink in a box and use it to therapize themselves (laughs) maybe so they can calm them it's a tool to learn how to self-soothe on a very basic level right because if Mm -hmm. i call up and dump all my stuff on my friend i guess that helps you know i'm venting that's good but i'm not necessarily figuring out what really happened so one thing i've learned and i'd love to pass on to your audience too is first of all i like to know my set point like if i get some bad news or disconcerting news or whatever i know it takes me x amount of time to cool the fuck down so i can think logically (laughs) so i tend not to respond i try not to respond now right away i go wait wait, 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 let's calm the brain down till it gets to a, you know, a, a sort of point where I can think a little more logically. And that's where tarot can help you, can help suss out things because quite often we are reenacting patterns that we've done over and over and over again. Tarot shows us the patterns and then how to break them. Hmm. Yeah, I can see that. It's almost like cognitive behavioral therapy in a way because you're like, let me look at the past, the present, re-examine these things and then go forward. You know what? It really is like cognitive behavioral therapy, to be totally honest, with definitely a slant of getting in touch with what is inside you. And again, and maybe I'm saying this because I am, uh, you know, mixed black girl, but want my black people to know, like, if, you know, people say to me, God is everywhere, then I'm like, if God's inside you, this is just a way to hear them clearer. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's all it is, a way to get in touch with your thoughts a little uh, clearer and without driving everyone away. Yeah, I agree with that. It comes from in you, and that's a tool to uh, to find that information. I agree. I think so. And then again, there is a little bit of an airy-fairy side to it, right? There are times when I've had some crazy, weird, coincidence, spooky things happen around it. I don't mean spooky. What I mean is coincidental things that are not coincidence. It's literally showing me the pattern. Or I'll say, mm-hmm. you know what? I don't believe this. Sh- I'm going to shuffle the deck, and if I get this one card, then it was right. And I pull the card out, and it's that one card out of 78 mm-hmm. cards. So... I'll do things like that. I actually have not done terribly many readings 
for myself this pandemic because I feel like things are out of sorts and I have a bit of a stoicism thing going as well as weeping on a semi-regular basis. But, But so I didn't feel the need to overdo uh, readings because I think it's a habit of a lot of people, especially when they first start to not understand the reading they threw or understand it but not like the message they got and then keep throwing more cards and more cards. So that's where it can get confusing. And I talk about that in the book, as well as, by the way, in the essays, a lot of the things you're asking me about, like what it was like to be in the 90s and experience, you know, be a black actress in the 90s. Um, I talk about my love life or lack thereof. <laughs> it's really a book of me owning my own shit, which is probably why it took two years. Because I'm going to say this. I had to get correct in my own life to really write the book properly. You know, I was like, if I'm going to write, I think I, I live my life in a way that I think is good. And I, and, and I try to do the right thing, right? But if I'm going to write a self-help book, which essentially it is, I had to make sure my life was uh, together, for sure. Right. So where can someone get this? Because I think it's super intriguing. It also seems very personal, um, which I think just makes it a little bit more alluring. So how can people get their hands I on I hope it? so. I'm so nervous. Right now, I ha- we haven't actually launched. Listen, I'm learning about publishing. And in publishing, <laughs> there's a pre-sale launch date, which will be coming in about three weeks, I guess. Um, okay. And yeah. that's when I'll be talking about it on my social media ad nauseum to the point where you want me to shut up, I'm sure. But right now, it's technically, it's already up for sale on Amazon. If you Google True Heart Intuitive Tarot or Rachel True and Tarot, if you Google those words, if you go to Amazon and Google it, you'll find my book and you can buy it and some of my friends have bought it already. But but it's kind of a blank page. I don't really have any blurbs on there yet or anything because we have not started the pre-sale launch. So, um... But it's up, and I would love it if people would <laughs> check it out. Because this is nerve-wracking to me. It's so different than an audition. Like, I go in, and and, um, and I haven't, you know, really uh, been auditioning much. I was focusing on the book, and that's what I wanted to do. And actually, as a middle-aged actress, it was just fine. Nobody's clamoring around the door. Like, here's the thing. When you're my age, they're like, oh, uh, come in for the grandma role. And then I go in for the grandma role, and they're like, you don't look like a grandma. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> you definitely don't look like Absolutely a grandma. Not. We talked about that on set. And I was like, you know, I was like, wait a minute, how old are I'm you? I'm <laughs> six million years old. But the deal is, I don't see the point in aging right now. I yeah, will yeah. at some point. I don't <laughs> right now. So the, here's the deal. I lead my life as art. Art is life. Life is art. So whatever I am doing, whether it is acting, writing, and I did, I did a couple movies uh, in the fall. Whatever I do, it's all art. That's how I look at life in general. I think that's so beautiful. And I also think it's brave to do what you're doing because writing the book is is another way of exposing yourself and kind of like your inner world. And I think I hear a little bit about that from you and like how you're nervous, maybe even more nervous than an audition. But, you know, fuck the naysayers and all the power to you. I hope everybody goes out and and checks the book out because it does sound very intriguing. Um, It was a joy to have you on the show and it's a joy to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, that's it? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no listen i really appreciate hey, it like don't fuck up my outro that was that was good <laughs> no listen i super duper appreciate uh you guys inviting me on like i said i had a blast it's always a nice to connect with kindred spirits you know we'll do more i think it's just the beginning <laughs> so we'll definitely stay in touch we're going to take a break and when we come back we're going to dig our claws into this episode's creatures of the night creature feature movie review 
Attention, misfits, mutants, and outcasts. The Boulay Brothers want you to join the cult now by visiting BoulayBrothersDragula.com, where everything from the world of the Boulay Brothers can be found. Be sure to sign up for the newsletter for insider updates, learn more about upcoming projects, and access tons of Boulay Brothers and Boulay Brothers Dragula exclusive merchandise. Visit us now at BoulayBrothersDragula.com. Do it or die. All right, welcome back, everyone. Let's welcome Ian back and dig our claws into the Boulay Brothers Creatures of the Night Creature Feature Movie Review. Now, the movie we chose this episode is called Relic. It's directed by Natalie Erica James, and this is her directorial debut. And it's available in drive-in theaters now and on streaming service Amazon Prime. Without spoiling it, the film is about a daughter, mother, and grandmother who are haunted by a manifestation that consumes their family's home. So let's dig in. What did you think? I have complicated feelings about this movie. I, I feel like if you guys know me, the trailer for this movie, I'm like, ooh, there's like, a, it's three generations of women fighting this like monster. Ooh, they're, they're horrified. There's mental illness. I'm sold. I'm in. And overall, I really, I did love it. I have some issues with the ending, but I won't spoil. But overall, I felt like it was a really solid look into kind of the horrors of dementia. So I want to, I, I kind of share some of my feelings, although the end was a significant part for me as well, except that's the part that actually sold me completely and made me say, <gasps> it made me go from liking this movie to absolutely loving this movie. Uh, really? Yeah, it kind of reframed the entire experience. Like, so I'm there for an hour and 15 minutes. I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh, yes. Oh my God, okay. Oh, I'm with it. Like, ooh, <gasps> you know, I'm, I'm like on the ride. But then the last 15 minutes, dismantled the entire picture and reformed it for me and reframed it for me. And it made me fall in love with this film. Okay. I, just to throw this out there, the last 15 minutes are phenomenal. I'm talking specifically about maybe the last like two minutes of the movie um, where they, they show off kind of this like big uh, thing that they've been leading up to. And I was just like, wah, wah. it kind of felt like a creature feature that I had seen somewhere else. Mm. I mean, maybe we're just, maybe we just take inspirations and visuals a little bit differently. But for me, it was, <laughs> it was the perfect way to end the entire, uh, the entire experience of the movie. What did you all think of the pace of the movie? I felt like the pace was, it was definitely a slow burn, but I kind of love those kind of movies. Like I, I love a movie that is constantly making me search to the edge of the frame, looking, ooh, is there something in the background of the scene? Is something going to happen? Um, that kind of tightrope tension is something that I really gravitate towards in a film, but I can definitely attest it is a slow burn. Also, I wanted to know if you both thought that they overused the words gran and ma. <laughs> gran. Mom, I mean, Grand. oh my god! I was like, "Are you kidding me?" I think I think they need to rename the movie. Grandma, Grand. I'm going to guess that it took these actresses about the afternoon to memorize the entire script. Grand, <laughs> Grand. <laughs> I, well, I think there's something wrong with Gran. So Jack and I had a crazy experience with this movie because we tried to see it the other night and we went to a drive-in as it should be viewed. And it was so fun, except the experience of a drive-in is very different than the experience of a theater. Uh, it's not as dark. So sometimes films, especially films like this, are often 
very grainy and it's filled with shadow. And if you're not in a completely darkened room, like the theater experience, you lose a lot of the detail. So when I first saw it, when, when I was watching the show at the drive-in, halfway through, I'm like, I hate this movie. It's so boring. I can't, I mean, mm-hmm. there's nothing to it. It's so, you know, it's ridiculous. Um, and then shortly after, like, I don't know what it was, but this the screen froze and the entire experience of the drive-in was ruined. Everybody started honking their horns and people were like chirping out and peeling donuts and they left the theater and so did we and I didn't get to see the ending. But I think it was kind of a blessing in disguise because we came home and we watched it in our home theater and then you could see all of the details and it was so brilliant and subtle and scary. Like I was literally really shook kind of watching probably 75% of this movie. Now I looked at Drac and she was like, oh my God, are you serious? But I was definitely affected. (laughs) Well, you know, I I grew up around like weird old country houses. And so to me, it's very unaffected as a vehicle. I'm just like this. Okay, yes, the dryer comes on. So what? It's like, you know, there's there's loud bangs around in the house. You know, old houses are like that. It's like they're always you just get used to it. No, no, ma'am. I was like, oh, my God, the wall. That's so insane. And you were like, what are you talking about? Old houses make noise like that. I was like oh girl no like i would not be okay <laughs> with a house making noises like that in the middle of the night absolutely not oh uh, well you guys know old houses making noise in the middle of the night is literally like top 10 horrifying things for me um but i mean didn't you think that it was cool the way they explained why the house was making those sorts of noises or i don't know i, I thought that that like when they reveal like oh th- it's this is the oh this is why the house is creaking or whatever i thought that reveal was like spectacular i'm not really sure if i even know what it was to be completely honest well, <laughs> that's the thing i this movie straddles surreality and reality and i think for individuals like ian without spoiling you might think uh oh this was actually really sort of straightforward and matter of fact and the house, you know, had hidden areas to it or whatever. But I think that could be seen as like a psychological metaphor, which is the way I took it, which actually really did not answer why the house was being so loud. And the end really just kind of frames it for the audience member to be challenged on how does this movie kind of like translate to you? I think. Mm -hmm. I think it, for me personally, it wasn't... A fantastic movie. I think the subject matter was great. I think the actresses were fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, the setting was interesting. I'm just not sure that I agree with it as a horror movie. Hmm. I did see a review that kind of categorized it as like the quote unquote poor man's hereditary. And I feel like that's a little bit disrespectful to the movie, but I do see the similarities in that style of horror. Um, I, I saw this more almost kind of like the Babadook, which is also, you know, female directed kind of directorial debut where the monster is maybe a metaphor for something else. And I don't know, I, those sorts of movies I really love. And overall, I would say I liked it. Uh, was it my favorite? No, but I would definitely recommend it. I'll tell you one of the things I felt was terrifying, <laughs> terrifying about this movie wasn't, you know, cause I don't want to spoil it about what, what happens in it, but the fact that they're like, we have to move this person out of this house. And there was so much junk in that house. I was, that is terrifying. Like, what are you going to do with all this stuff? <laughs> I was like, can you imagine having to go through all that? I mean, it was just, and then especially when I found the extra part of the house, I was like, I would just burn it down. Forget it. <laughs> well, Sherry, thank you for sharing your opinion about what it would take to move grounds. How? 
Well, it was. It was so much stuff. And then I almost felt like it added to the panic of like when you discovered that there was more room and she just kept going and going and going. And it almost made the whole thing that I thought was the scariest part of the film was discovering those additional rooms and they were getting smaller. That I felt really claustrophobic and scary and I thought it would continue that way and it just didn't. It's really surprising. Uh, You guys made analogies to other films and I actually had one too. This movie reminded me a lot of um, The Taking of Deborah Logan, which is a a movie that I've I've talked about before. I love that movie. Truly horrifying. And it it touches on the elderly and it touches on like Alzheimer's and other mental illnesses and how that can come in and warp someone you love's reality. And I think there's a true tinge of horror there. Um, I think Relic really was successful at creating this idea of sort of like this presence and a dread kind of like this insidious rot that overtook everything and like everyone that touched the house and i again i got really scared watching this movie but then at the end it turned and created like this humanistic sort of soft tender humanizing message and it was really surprising and i love this movie well, I agree with you there. It is very tender. It's very soft. I think that that's maybe my ultimate critique is I, I like my horror bleak. I'm like, you know, there's no survivors. They, you know, everyone dies in the house or something like that. And just it had like kind of a peaceful uh, tone at the end. which I was like, okay, that's nice. Um, but I don't know. If you're not into allegory, that last scene is weird <laughs> let's be honest like what dude it, it, it actually it couldn't have been more different ian if you were a fly on the wall like picture us both on the couch i'm on the right uh-huh. i'm on the right jacks on the left like that that last scene is unfolding <laughs> like my heart is swelling like i was laying down i literally i'm like oh, i'm like bitch I, I got up and i'm like i'm wringing my hands together and i'm like all my i'm my, i'm leaning forward toward the screen and i look over at track and she's like leaning way back heads on the side like eyes rolling like what the fuck <laughs> oh my God. i, I want to talk about it after everyone sees it because that last totally. scene i want to talk about it but i don't want to spoil it i think this was dark cocoon and i'm not into it <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh oh. i i totally agree i feel like there needs to be maybe like an after show where we do the spoilers uh review because i have a lot more to say about it but i don't want to spoil anything um i do have one thing that i you know really shook me uh just when i was watching the end credits you know it's it's amazing that this you know film was uh directed by a woman it has a woman-centric cast so i hate to bring a man into it but i saw that it was produced by jake gyllenhaal and girl oh, let, oh. let me tell you what i was wet honey (laughs) that is like my og celebrity crush (laughs) how weird i thought that was random too maybe he knows them or something oh actually he was the he's i won't spoil it (laughs) he's grand (laughs) there we go He pulled a Tilda Swinton. <laughs> okay, and on that note, I, I think we're going to take one final break, and when we come back, we'll be thrilling and chilling you with this episode's haunting of history. Welcome back, and welcome to this episode's haunting of history. For this section of the show, we like to dig up a real-life documented supernatural happening and give listeners an abridged history of the terrifying event. We encourage you to turn off the lights, find a dark, quiet place to relax in, and prepare for a journey into the unknown. 
At 9820 Easton Drive in Beverly Hills sits an unassuming two-story home built in the 1920s. The house sits back on a quiet wooded plot in an upper-class neighborhood hidden away from sight. While the house sits quiet now, it has a terrifying history of violence, madness, and haunting that has plagued its inhabitants for nearly a century. The home originally belonged to MGM producer Paul Byrne during the 1920s and 30s. Paul fell in love with and married fame Hollywood actress Jean Harlow, and the couple were married in the living room of the house. Shortly thereafter, the house's mysterious misfortune began to manifest itself. Allegedly somewhere between two days and two months after being married, Paul attacked Jean in the home's downstairs bathroom, savagely beating her. Two days later, Paul shot and killed himself in the upstairs master bedroom. The couple's butler discovered the body and phoned MGM instead of the police, which fueled speculation that the suicide was actually a murder. Harlow moved out of the home shortly after, but her misfortune was not left behind. Jean herself died a few years later at the young age of 26. In the years that followed, two other people reportedly committed suicide on the property and an additional person drowned in the pool. The home was purchased and sold a few times before landing into the hands of celebrity hairstylist Jay Zabring in the 1960s, who moved in with his then-girlfriend, actress Sharon Tate. Sharon told many friends over the years that she often experienced paranormal activity at the house and was once quoted as saying, At night, people swear they see and hear Paul Byrne's ghost. It's a house where you get scared. During an interview promoting her 1965 film, The Devil Had Eyes, Sharon recounted a horrifying episode that she experienced while sleeping at the property. She was awakened by what she thought was the ghost of Paul Byrne. Terrified, she fled from the bedroom only to encounter the ghost of a man tied to the railings of the stairs by a white rope with a slit throat. Sharon eventually left Jay, moved out of the house, and began dating Roman Polanski, but Sharon and Jay remained close. On a random August night in 1969, Sharon, Jay, and a group of friends were out to dinner at Hollywood's famous Mexican restaurant El Coyote before returning to Polanski's home. Hours later, members of the Charles Manson family forced themselves into the house and murdered everyone inside, including Sharon and Jay. Sharon Tate was 26 when she died, the exact same age that Jean Harlow was when she died. The house at 9820 Easton Drive still stands there today, nestled in the woods of Beverly Hills. Although misfortune has followed nearly all of the house's residents, its current owners remain private and no further stories of hauntings have leaked from its gates. So far. That's all the time we have for this episode. Thank you for joining us. And remember, if you have questions for us about projects we are working on or anything we've discussed on this episode, please email us at creatures at bouletbrothersdragula.com. Remember to watch the Boulay Brothers Dragula streaming now on Netflix in the U.S., Out TV in Canada, Amazon Prime in the U.K. and Australia, and TVNZ in New Zealand. Bye, uglies. Creatures of the Night is hosted and produced by Drac Morta and Swanthula Boulay. Featuring co-host Ian DeVogler. 
produced by Natasha Posada, edited and mixed by Ernesto Hortada, with music by Neuron Spectre. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.